one of the subjects that we have been spending quite a bit of time on, and you could spend a lot more time on it, and we may, is this subject of the resurrection and some of the questions that have come up about what does it take to get a resurrection. It doesn't seem like it'd be that complicated of a question. It seems like we ought to have a simple answer for that. But sometimes, unfortunately, people have a tendency to overcomplicate things that the Bible is very simple on. The core central belief, we're getting ready to approach it here within about a month, isn't it? When we're celebrating the time of the resurrection. That's one of those periods that though we ought to celebrate it every day of our life, because it's our hope, our hope is based on His resurrection, and we ought to have that as the motivational force that's pulling us forward is we're moving towards the resurrection. What would want to cause you to do everything the way you do it? I hope we all do, but if you don't have the maturity to be doing it just purely because you love the Lord and respect Him, love and respect for God are the biggest reasons to serve Him, not a reward. You have to give the Sadducees this much, as much as they had their serious problems with their doctrine, including not believing in angels, not believing in the resurrection. They still were serving the Lord. That's pretty astonishing. If you didn't even believe in the resurrection, but you're still faithfully serving the Lord, you didn't believe there was any life after this. It says something for them, they'd still be serving the Lord. But we want to serve the Lord for the right reasons. But the resurrection is a very good reason to be serving the Lord, but you don't want to be serving Him just for the reward. Or just because you fear the punishment, I was talking Sunday night about the full gospel and how one of the elements that constituted in the full gospel is an understanding of eternal judgment, an understanding of what's going to happen if you don't accept the offer you're being given. Don't accept the opportunity of life that God is holding out to us. But where do you get that opportunity? That's been the question we've been talking about for some weeks now. At what point do you receive the hope of the resurrection? And I have said quite a bit about the nature of when you become alive to God and when you are in a relationship with God. I talked a little bit last time, not in any depth, but about covenant relationship and even the blood and its part in that. Another element of it is sonship. So when I'm looking at what would get somebody a resurrection, I'm looking at what does it take to be in a relationship with God? Because if you're in a relationship with God, you would guess that you would be receiving a resurrection as long as you remain in that relationship with God. But there have been some that have added other stipulations. Well, it isn't enough to be in a relationship with God. You've got to get up to this level before you get a resurrection. I do not believe there is a level associated with the second resurrection other than relationship with God in the new covenant. Now there's a different level you have to reach to have a first resurrection. But as far as having a general resurrection, I don't think the standard for that gets more difficult as time goes on. That wouldn't even make sense, would it? So if we can go back to the Old Testament and find out what it took for them to get a resurrection, that's been kind of what we've been talking about. If we can find out what it took for them to get a resurrection in terms of a second resurrection, shouldn't be any different for us under the new covenant, should it? Why would God make the standard higher for believers in Christ? The only real difference between the Old and the New Testament in terms of the faith component is that now under the New Testament, you can't just have faith in God, you've got to have faith in Christ. That's really the major change in the issue of faith. Faith was always the entry point to relationship with God all through the Bible. I do not believe that change under the New Testament. Now the only way for you to be in a relationship with God is for you to have faith and then get the Holy Spirit. And if you don't get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're not really in a relationship with God. That puts you in a better state of relationship. It puts you in a deeper state of relationship. It gives you more power and insight that I've been talking about. But that is not the entry point to relationship. The entry point to relationship has never changed. It's always been faith. And I started saying I've been focusing a lot on what the Bible tells us about receiving life. Like we talked about scriptures that talk about being quickened, which means to receive life. 
and how the word quickens us. If we're looking for what does it take to get a resurrection, well, some people think you have to be alive to God to get a resurrection. Well, when are you alive to God? When does God consider you spiritually alive? That's the dangerous word, the word spiritually, because sometimes when people hear the word spiritually, they assume the only way something can be spiritual is if it's something that is past the level of Holy Spirit baptism. But that's just simply not biblical. All through the Old Testament, the Word of God was a spiritual thing, wasn't it? There were men of God who were moved by the Holy Ghost. Hebrews said, holy men of old were moved by the... No, not Hebrews, Peter. And Hebrews, the first verse, gets into the same point, talking about the fact that holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost was operating. The Holy Ghost has always been operating. We've never not had the Holy Ghost operating. The difference is it's not always operating on the same level. This would get us into something a little bit deeper. But if you look at those four levels of the Holy Ghost being dispensed that you see in Ezekiel 47, how we talked about this a little bit before, and we've talked about many times through the years in this assembly, I know, but those four levels of dispensing of the Holy Spirit, when it finally gets to be a river that could swim over, the Holy Spirit was present, though, for all that time, wasn't it? It wasn't that the Holy Spirit wasn't there, and suddenly the Holy Spirit appears on the day of Pentecost for the first time. Surprise! The Holy Spirit had always been there. The difference is, on the day of Pentecost, it reached a level it never reached before. A level of power was available that had never been possible under the Old Covenant. But the Holy Spirit was always working. And in terms of life, it was giving life throughout. I gave you those scriptures in Job. There's several of them. There's at least one that Job says, and there's two Elihu says in the book of Job, where it's talking about how all of creation is alive by the Spirit and breath of God. That was true from the beginning. The Holy Spirit was working in the creation from the very beginning. So we have to be very careful in thinking that the only way for something to be spiritual is for that to happen after someone's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a higher level of spiritual involvement, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean there's no spirit in something until the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes. There was spirit in the Word of God. There was spirit in the relationships that God had with his people. He touched them with his spirit. He filled prophets with his spirit different times. And that was working all through that period. So if we're looking for what does it take to get a resurrection? Well, you've got to have the spirit. But what level of the spirit? That's the real question. What level of the spirit is necessary to get a resurrection? What level of the spirit do you have to have operating in your life? We've already answered this a few times, but what level of the Spirit had to be operated in the life of the Old Testament patriarchs for them to know they were going to get a resurrection? I know we don't usually ask it that way because we, again, we think of the Spirit being a new covenant thing. It's not a new covenant thing. It's always been just the new covenant's higher level now. So did they have a level of the Spirit in their lives under the Old Covenant? Sure they did. What gave them the hope of a resurrection? Well, the Word of God we've been talking about, and that's really the centerpiece, but what gave them the hope of a resurrection? It was that something had changed in their heart. Now, the full circumcision of your heart and the process that includes can't happen without Holy Spirit baptism, but God can still affect your heart with His Spirit long before you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. What do you think happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood out in front of the 12 and the other 11 in this case? He was one of the 12. Peter stood out and the other 11 stood behind him and he started preaching to that crowd. None of that crowd are filled with the Holy Spirit. But you realize the words coming out of Peter's mouth pierced them to the heart. The Spirit-wedded word touched their heart. It touched their heart. And the touching of the Spirit, touching their heart, brought life. And that life responded to Peter's message. And that's why they said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? God had brought their conscience alive to him. 
through the touch of His Spirit. didn't require Him being baptized for that to happen. Again, Holy Spirit baptism is a powerful and absolutely necessary ingredient. But it's not necessary for a second resurrection, because that was already possible before the Holy Spirit was given. So I said, there's a few things that were on my mind with some of the questions I got related to this subject. One was, what kind of things bring life to us? Because life is critical. If you've got life in you, then you know you've got the hope of a resurrection. That's why I spent the amount of time I did showing that the Word of God is alive. It's quick. This is, I told you, one of the best reasons to pay attention to the original language because that word quick is not just alive. It is a verb meaning life-giving. So it's a life-giving power, the Word of God is. It gives life. And so if the Word of God has given you life, then the Word of God should be what would allow you to have a resurrection if you've received the Word of God. And I talked about covenants and relationships, and one of the things that I had a lot of thoughts on and got a lot of questions about, I don't know if I'll get into it in any real depth tonight, but one of those things was sonship. What does it take to be a son of God? That's one of the things, probably more than anything else, that has caused some to believe that you will not get a resurrection until you're baptized the Holy Spirit. Because in their mind, you're not really a child of God until you're baptized the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives life, and so since it gives life, you won't have any life until it gives that life. But we have to rightly divide the word of truth on this subject of the Holy Spirit because there are times that the Holy Spirit that's talking about the Spirit giving you life is talking about Holy Spirit baptism and then going on and living and walking in the Spirit. And then there's times that it's talking about the Holy Spirit where it's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit anointed something that's giving you life. If the Holy Spirit anoints the Word of God, it'll give you life. The Spirit's giving you life through the Word. So you've got to be really careful look at the context of what's being said in the Bible when you're looking at things like that. Try to get an idea. Is this talking about Holy Spirit baptism giving me life? Or is it talking about the Holy Spirit bringing something to life in me through the Word? Because the Word and the Spirit are inseparable. If it is really, truly the genuine Word of God, it is inseparable from the Holy Spirit. They are married together in a way that cannot be separated, which means if the Word of God penetrates your heart, the Spirit is there. If somebody under a Spirit-anointed message is preaching to you, and the Word of God slips through the crevices of your crusty exterior and gets down and touches your heart, the Spirit is what brought it there. The Spirit is what inspired it. The Spirit is what anointed it. The Spirit is what opened you up to it. The Spirit is what will plant it in your heart and allow it to germinate in your heart. So the Spirit is there all throughout the process. So just saying you have to have the Spirit to have a resurrection, amen. But you don't have to have Holy Spirit baptism to have a second resurrection. But you do have to have the life of the Spirit in you through the Word and vice versa. So anyone who's a child of God, whether initially by faith or in some other measure that comes, like Holy Spirit baptism, is going to receive a resurrection in my view. So that'd be another subject you could look at. I said I got a lot of questions on, well, a couple of different things. One of them was scriptures about children of God and sons of God. One of them was about the book of life. Do you think that anybody written in the book of life would get a resurrection? I told you I'm going to try to slow down. When I slow down, that means I'm hoping for engagement. I don't just mean yelling amen. That's always nice, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for engagement. I can answer. Do you think if your name's in the book of life, let me use some other phrases, because I think all of these are referring to the book of life. Do you think if your name is written in God's book of remembrance, you'll get a resurrection? That's another title for the book of life in Malachi 3. Do you think if you're, I'm going to use a phrase, you know, this one gets a little edgier if you know where it's found. Do you think if your name's written in heaven, you'll get a resurrection? Come on now, somebody answer. I, I see Mark and Dylan nodding, but somebody, all right. All those things, by the way, are very simple. 
Whether you're talking about the book that God wrote that Moses talked about, maybe I'll touch on those scriptures again real quick. Whether you're talking about the book that's talked about in the Psalms, the book of the living, the righteous are written in the book of the living. Whether you're talking about the book of remembrance and Malachi, whether you're talking about the book in Daniel, whether you're talking about the book of life, as it's called in the New Testament. I don't want to wade too deep, well, unless you have questions. I don't mind answering questions on it. You have questions about it, but I wouldn't plan on wading too deep into the Lamb's book of life. That could be the same thing as the book of life, or it may be a slightly different, it may be like a different section of the book of life, like a specialized subsection or different type of book. That'd be a different subject perhaps, but I'll leave it out there in case you want to ask some questions about it. But do you think if somebody was in the book of life, they would have the opportunity for a resurrection? Well, I do. I think if somebody's in the book of life, that would mean that they're alive to God. You've got to figure out what these terms mean. Sometimes people get caught up in this thing about being alive to God, and they think, well, if you're alive to God, you'll never die. So at the point of your physical death, your soul will move out because you're alive to God. Well, if you're going to use that kind of phrase, you're going to have to realize that that kind of conception of being alive to God was true of people who weren't perfect overcomers. So if the idea is, as some believe in the idea of moving out as a live soul, they believe, well, if you're alive to God as an overcomer, when you die, you just go on. You don't have to wait for resurrection. You go right on into heaven. But the problem with that is that the idea of being alive to God applies to a lot more people than overcomers. You're alive to God long before you're an overcomer. If your name's written in his book, you're alive to God. Lazarus was alive to God. That's one of the most interesting places to study this subject is looking at the story of Lazarus' resurrection and how Jesus handled that. There's a whole bunch of little clues in there to how God and Christ see somebody they intend to live again. The obvious one is the fact that after Lazarus had died and Jesus is talking to his disciples and he knew Lazarus was dead, he was still talking about Lazarus as if Lazarus was still alive. And he said, I'm going to wake Lazarus out of his sleep. They're like, look, Jesus, Lazarus isn't sleeping right now. He's past the point of sleep. They're preparing him to put him in the tomb. He is dead. It'd be one of those things where I wish I could have seen Jesus' expression and body language when this conversation was going on. Because you can almost see a little bit of frustration in the passage. Almost like, you don't get it, do you? When I say he's asleep, I know he's dead. But the reason that God would refer to somebody as being asleep, or Jesus would refer to somebody as being asleep, is because they are able to wake them up. To them, death is just like sleep. It's no harder to, though some people are harder to wake up than others. I had one friend that would fall asleep at the drop of a hat. One time we were sitting in a Mr. Gaddy's there in Louisville, a general meeting, and right in the middle of the dinner, he fell asleep. And slowly, I would have caught him if I knew it was coming. Dylan, I would have caught him. I didn't do it on purpose. I watched his head going, and I thought, no, he's not... He slowly went right into the pizza. His face was planted in the pizza, and he just kept sleeping away. And I thought, what in heaven's name? Narcolepsy or whatever you call that, but he just keeled over. And if he went to sleep at night, one night we were sleeping in the dorms, and he rolled over, and his head was between the door, and every person that opened the door hit him in the head at the door, and he never did wake up. I was trying to get him out of there, but he was a big guy, and I was having a hard time moving him, and he wouldn't help me. He would not wake up. But that's not the case with God and Jesus waking somebody up. God and Jesus, all they have to do is speak a word and somebody will wake. But when God talks about somebody being asleep, this helps with some other issues related to the subject of the resurrection that aren't what we've been talking about, but they're another subject. Talk about people sleeping, you know, or seems to present them as if they're alive, but just unconscious. They're not alive. They are really dead. It's just that God refers to people he plans to raise from the dead as being asleep because to him, they're just sleeping. So when Jesus was talking about Lazarus, the disciples didn't get the point. The point was to Jesus, he was just sleeping. 
It's just like when Jesus went in to Jairus' daughter and they kept telling him, she's died. He said, she's sleeping. He used a phrase that I think is one of the most tender phrases he could possibly have used. The root word for girl that he used there is a word for a little lamb. So it could be the way he was using that word in Aramaic, he was saying, little lamb, wake up. It wasn't even any powerful raise from the dead kind of command. It would just wake up because that's all it takes with the Lord. It doesn't take more effort than that when to him you're asleep. So someone whose name is written in the book of life is someone who is going to have a resurrection. They are alive to God. Now, when I say they're alive to God, that does not mean that they're walking around somewhere. That doesn't mean they're conscious. I don't even think it means that their soul is in some semi-hibernation state somewhere. Why would God need to do that? God is able to reconstitute life from nothing. Nothing. He doesn't need any DNA to be left. He doesn't need a soul to be stored somewhere that he can go get. Oh, I got to go. Here, let me get that soul out of the refrigerator. Forgive me for being facetious, but let me go get that soul. He doesn't need to do that. He can recreate something with a thought. If a soul went totally out of existence, it didn't go out of existence up here in the mind of God. And all he has to do to bring it back into existence is not go looking for it in the big filing cabinet in the sky where all the souls are stored until the resurrection. They're stored in his mind. All those souls are stored in his mind. When we're talking about God's book, we're talking about the book of his memory. Maybe I'll read those scriptures, but notice how Malachi says it there in Malachi 3. It's like 16, 17, 18, right in there. Calls it a book of remembrance. Who's the one doing the remembering? God is. I think anyone who is alive to God, I'm going to come at this issue of who gets a resurrection slightly differently. I've been trying to hit it from a lot of different angles, and I've been trying to answer questions at the same time, so it's not quite as systematic as the way I normally do it. If I was doing a formal, I guess you'd call it formal, if I was doing a more organized Bible study, I tend to be more systematic. I go point by point by point, and some of our Bible studies we put together on the resurrection are that way. But this, I've been getting bombarded with enough questions that I'm jumping around a little bit, so I hope you'll forgive me. I'm not being as line by line. But to take another look at this, to look at what it is to be alive to God and when you're alive to God. Because if you're alive to God, you're going to have a resurrection. If you're alive in his mind, because individuals who he doesn't have a relationship with and who die outside of a relationship with him are effectively forgotten by God. I don't mean that he couldn't call up their memory. I don't mean he forgets what they did and all those things. But as far as any relationship, they're forgotten. Their memory means nothing. Their memory is now in the earth. Their memory's not in heaven. That's why it's talking about people's names being in the earth versus your name being written in heaven. Your name can be written in the earth. You might have a great name in the earth. You might make a name for yourself like great powerful figures in history have done where they're still writing books about you hundreds of years later. I just got an advertisement here the other day. I collect real nice leather-bound books from places like Easton Press and places like that. And just lately, they came up with a new book on the life of Napoleon. They're still writing books about the life of Napoleon. Big, heavy, leather-bound, with some ridiculous three or $400 price tag on it. Napoleon's long dead, and his legacy is pretty much gone. What he did in France is pretty much over with. It was overturned by the things that happened after his time. Yet, they're still writing books. You could have your name written in the earth like that where they'll be talking about you for hundreds of years, but one of these days your name will never be heard again because your memory isn't going to be carried forward into the new heavens and the new earth if your name is only written in the earth. In order for your memory and your life to go forward into the new heavens and the new earth, your name's got to be written in heaven. So when do you get your name written in heaven? I use that phrase very intentionally. It's in Luke. I'm going to come back to it probably. Maybe somebody will find it. I can tell you where it's at, but I'd rather you find it on your own. That makes you have to do some work. He talks about your names being written in heaven. That's a pretty important statement. 
If your name's written in heaven, I cannot imagine anyone would argue you wouldn't get a resurrection. Surely, if your name's written in heaven, if you died tomorrow, you're going to have a resurrection. Surely, if your name's written in the book of life, what does the book of life even mean if not a book of those who are going to have life? Because the book of life cannot be a record of the people that are alive, right? Everybody would be in it. It's a book of those who are going to receive life. So when you hear the title, the book of life, it's talking about a book that has the list of names in it, so to speak, of those who are going to receive life one of these days. If they die by receiving life, I'm talking about resurrection from the dead. If they die, they'll have a resurrection. So when we find those titles that we know we're talking about the same thing, Luke 10, 20, he says, notwithstanding, this is after they were casting out some evil spirits, and they were pretty excited about that. They were getting full of themselves, you know, look at us, look what we did. Jesus kind of took the air out of their tires a few times with some of that. In this case, he goes, that's not what you need to be concerned about, how much power you have in this world. The fact that the spirits are subject unto you isn't what you ought to be rejoicing about. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Notice it's present tense. That's important for the point I'm about to make. He told the disciples, this is sometime before the day of Pentecost, all right? The day of Pentecost hadn't come yet. He told the disciples, your names are written in heaven. He didn't say, your names will be written in heaven. He said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It wasn't a promise about some in the future that once you receive the Holy Spirit, your name will be written in heaven. It's that right now your names are written in heaven. You got a reason to rejoice right now. When somebody falls down at the altar and gives their heart to the Lord, they can rejoice because God has taken notice of them. They would not be drawn to the altar if God hadn't already taken notice of them. We love him because he first loved us. If God wasn't reaching out to them in love and they didn't respond, they wouldn't be running to the altar. But the fact that they've run to the altar, wherever they, they could fall down in their pew, they could sit down at their bedside or wherever they might be. I've seen people in their car that met the Lord, driving in a car, and the God of heaven spoke to their heart, and they turned their heart over to the Lord right there. I know one person was walking to the mailbox, and on the way to the mailbox, halfway there, they gave their heart to the Lord, and by the time they got there, they were speaking in tongues. Think about that. He took care of a couple of stages back to back. There are all kinds of ways you can enter into a relationship with the Lord. But if you enter into a relationship with the Lord, it'll write your name in heaven because you've been recorded as being in relationship with God. I'm saying this very intentionally. Their names were written in heaven before the new covenant was even established. Their names were written in heaven before the day of Pentecost ever came. They were already written in heaven. But that's not a surprise because, as I said, all you have to do is go back to the Old Testament to some of those passages that talk about the book of life. What's the first one if we're going in order? Exodus 32, when Moses was, I know we talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but when Moses was going through his response to God, when God was threatening to destroy Israel at the 31st through the 33rd verse of Exodus 32, God was threatening to destroy Israel, and Moses said back to him, start in the 31st verse, Brother Andy, I think he starts out saying, oh, this people, is his first words. This people have sinned a great sin, and have made them God's gold said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and made them gods of gold. So they have done something worthy of your judgment, Lord. But we want to read the next verse or two. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. If you'll forgive their sin. This is one of those sentences that I guess here they've got dash, dash. But in our modern English grammar, we put dot, dot, dot. If thou wilt forgive their sin. He's not finishing the sentence. And if not, blot me. I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Might add the 33rd verse, but I want to say something about that first. We talked about this before, so I'm just grazing over these real quick to get to a point. But notice what Moses is saying. 
He knew. It must have been common knowledge among God's people that God has a book. We don't hear much about it up to this point in the Bible, but clearly he understood God's got a book that he's written. And if your name gets blotted out of it, you'd still be walking around the earth. So what would change? What would the threat be? Let me make this even simpler. The vast majority of the population of the earth at that time were not in that book that Moses is talking about. That's the book of God's people. You'll see that in some other passages as well that'll make that even clearer. But this is the book that's the record of those who are in a relationship with God. That's what the book of life is. That's what God's book is. You want a simple one-sentence definition. It's the record of those who are in a relationship with God. Whether they're alive or dead, it's the record of those names of those individuals. Most of the planet at the point that Moses said this was not in a relationship with God. So they weren't in the book. But were they walking around alive? Some of them might have lived 100 or more years. In fact, in that day, people were living over 100 years. They were still living a pretty expanded lifetime. You notice if you study it, it's real interesting to look at a graph of this, that after the flood, we started out with these huge lifespans, you know, almost 1,000 years. Adam peaking up over 900 and several of them peaking up over 900. Methuselah getting almost to 1,000, you know, within one generation. If he just lived one more, about 40 years generation, he would have hit it. Methuselah was right in that era where he almost reached 1,000. I know you know this, but when God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, he meant it in every layer you could look at it. Even the thousand-year prophetic day. Nobody lived even a thousand-year day. They began dying in the day that they ate of that fruit. They were dead spiritually the day they ate of that fruit. And then even prophetically, nobody lived what we call a thousand-year prophetic day. Nobody even lived that long. But it's interesting if you look at the flood, they were still living a pretty long time up until the time of the flood. Then when the flood hit, it dropped dramatically. Ages dropped about half and then started cutting pretty quick after that in terms of expected lifespans. They were still living beyond anything we could imagine right after the flood, but it started dropping very precipitously after the flood. There could be reasons for that. Some people have theories about what was up in the atmosphere that might have made the planet different, that could have extended life, that was gone with some of the things that changed with the flood that would get into another subject entirely, a lot of technical things. But the fact is that those lifespans started dropping, but there were a lot of people that were potentially living 100 or more years in Moses' day. He lived over 100 years, didn't he? People living more than 100 years. So it wasn't that suddenly if you're blotted out of the book, you would be dead because there were a lot of people that weren't in the book at all that were walking around alive, weren't they? So what's the threat of getting blotted out of the book? By the way, the reason the Sadducees, while you're thinking about your answer, the reason the Sadducees were so resistant to the teaching of the resurrection is that they believed, this is kind of foolish if you think about it, but they felt justified. They believed every doctrine has to find its origin in a clear statement in the Torah in order for it to be valid. So if they found a statement in Daniel or in Job that sound like it's talking about the resurrection, the Torah to them is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of Pentateuch, we call it in Greek. If they could not find a scripture that proved the hope of the resurrection in the first five books of the law, the Torah, it didn't matter what the rest of the Bible said about it. They still treated it as divinely inspired, but to them, if you could not find it in the Torah, in those first five books, didn't matter if you saw it somewhere else in the Bible. Couldn't be right. Had to be a misinterpretation, whatever. So they would always go back to the Torah, which is what's interesting is when Jesus made his statement, we'll get back to about being the God of the living and not the God of the dead. 
He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You realize he's quoting back into the Torah. So when he was confronted by the Sadducees and they're trying to trip him up about the resurrection, and the whole challenge was they tried to catch him. They said, what if a woman's husband died and the next brother married her, the next brother married her, according to the Leverite law. And she ended up having married seven individuals. And then she comes up in the resurrection. Whose wife is she? It's another one of those things I almost wonder if Jesus didn't have a look of irritation because the way he responded to it, it would all have to do with if you could hear his voice when he said, you err concerning the scripture and the power of God. That led up to this point where he responded to them. He said, have you not read the scriptures where it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And he said, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And they all knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were laying in their graves. So Jesus made a very subtle attack on their doctrine. And instead of quoting Job, which is where I would probably want to go first, I'd be like, but Job said, or going to Daniel, but Daniel said, David said, I could quote some Psalms, you know, we can come up with a number of places to talk about the resurrection in the Old Testament. Jesus was intelligent enough, obviously, he was greater intelligence than any of us. But Jesus was so masterful, he knew exactly what they were looking for. That wouldn't have mattered if he quoted that. Who cares? Not in the Torah. So he went straight to the Torah. God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the Torah, he said that. In the five books of the law. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, that's why grammar is so important. Tenses are important in the Bible. That's why I said, pay attention to that in Luke 10. Your names are written in heaven, not will be, are so he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, this will help you understand what it is to be alive to God. It doesn't mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are up in heaven right now walking around. Some may believe they got up in Matthew 27, 52 and went on into the church and went on to perfection. We have not held that view. I don't personally believe that. I think the second resurrection is the resurrection when the Old Testament patriarchs come up. That's what they all believed. That's what they all said. That's how Job described it. That's how Daniel described it. That's how Martha talking to Jesus right before the resurrection of Lazarus we were talking about. She said, I know that my brother will live again in the resurrection at the last day. She didn't say sometime soon. The resurrection at the last day. The last day still hasn't come. That resurrection at the last day is at the last day. The last day in the, notice I said those thousand year prophetic days. The last of the thousand year prophetic days, the white throne judgment period. Time of the second resurrection and the end of the 20th chapter of Revelation. So Martha said, he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's when they knew they were coming up, is in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus didn't go to any of those examples. He could have gone to all those different examples, said he went right into the Torah. But again, Jesus wasn't saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were up in heaven walking around with God the Father right now and the angelic host and everyone else that you think is up there. When he made the statement he made in Matthew. What Jesus was saying was that they're alive to God. And by the way, that shows you exactly what it means to be alive to God. It doesn't mean your soul is alive somewhere. It means that you're alive in his memory. He hasn't forgotten you. He plans on bringing you back into existence. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, look, Peter himself said this, didn't he? In one of his messages in the book of Acts, he said, David's sepulcher is with us. Now, by the way, he wasn't talking about David's grave being there. He's talking about David's bones being in David's grave. So he said, David's still here. By the way, he was trying to make a point about David's statements and prophecy about Jesus. But David's sepulcher is still with us. David's bones are still there. The dust of his bones at that point had been about a thousand years since David's death almost. So probably the dust of his bones at the best are there. He was saying that on the day of Pentecost, seven weeks after Matthew 27, 52, he was saying David's bones are still over where he was buried. 
So David couldn't have been anybody rising up at that time. That's another subject for another day. But they expected to rise in the resurrection at the last day. So if your name was written in heaven, if you were in his memory and in his mind, that's what it means to be in his book. So any of these passages we're talking about, what is that 33rd verse of Exodus 32? That's the Lord's response. Go ahead and read that out. The Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. That really helps to qualify, because I've actually heard some try to argue, and there's a reason they do. It's trying to protect their doctrinal position on a doctrine I'm not going to bring up tonight, but they try to argue that the book of life is not the book of the righteous. It's the book of everyone that's alive. It's the record of everybody that's alive on the earth. That is absolutely not the case, because there are a lot of people that had sinned against God. There are a lot of people who weren't in relationship with him, and he just said, if someone sins against me, I'll blot him out of the book. So if somebody never was in a relationship with him, they couldn't be in the book to begin with, could they? They had sinned against him already, and they hadn't made any restitution for that. So the only way to get in the book is to get in a relationship with God. And once you're in a relationship with God and you're in the book, the way to get taken out of the book is to sin against God. Some people don't think you can get taken out of the book. Jesus made that pretty clear in his statement to one of the seven churches when he said, He that overcometh, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Which means you could get your name blotted out of the book of life if you don't go on to perfection. Here in Revelation 3, 5, says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I'll confess his name for my father and before his angels. So we want to keep our name in the book of life, but how do we get it in? That's the whole point I'm coming at tonight. That's the point I want you to get that I've touched on before, but it's very important for this subject. How do you get your name in the book of life? And then you need to realize if your name is in that book, you will have a resurrection. So how do you get your name in it? Moses had his name in it, didn't he? He knew his name was in it. I wish we had had more background why he knew that. Clearly, there was a tradition among them that they knew. The Lord had spoken to him, or some that's not recorded because Moses just started talking about it like it was something that's common knowledge, didn't he? If you're not going to forgive them, and I've told you that's a beautiful picture of him acting as an intercessor. Folks from Mansfield and folks from here in Green went to that Jewish museum in Cleveland here a few years ago, didn't we? One of the things that absolutely broke my heart was when they got into this space where I thought, well, that's interesting. I knew the history of this comic book character, so I knew why he was there, but they had this image of Superman going up through the ceiling, you know, and then they had the pictures of the creators of Superman. The point of that was they were Jewish young men that created Superman. And the tour guide of the group that I was with at that time, I can't remember who all was with our group, we were in smaller groups, was an older Jewish lady. She started going through and explaining what inspired them to write about Superman. It just about ripped my heart out of me. I wanted to start preaching the gospel right there, but I knew it was not going to be well received. But oh, it just about tore my heart out. She said, the Jewish people have in their hearts this terrible burning hope of a redeemer. And she starts describing it. And I'm like, that's Jesus. She starts describing it more. That's Jesus. She just keeps going into more detail. I'm thinking, that's Jesus. And she's going through and saying, a man that would do this and a man that would do that and a man that would stand right in front of God's judgment for God's people to take the blow. And I thought, oh, Lord, we're headed right where I'm... No, we weren't headed there at all. She said, and Moses was the man God filled that role. She said, that's who they modeled Superman after. They thought a man like that that will protect God's people. And I thought, you do have a Superman, but you just don't know him yet. And he is far bigger than Moses. It about tore my heart out listening to it because I was waiting. Oh, my Lord, is she a Messianic Jew? Is she going to start talking about Jesus? It wasn't Jesus on her mind at all. But she was describing Jesus. It's like someone going through the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and you're thinking, yep, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know who that's pointing to, right? You know who fulfilled that, right? And they don't see it. The Jews think the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is talking about them. You know that? They think that's talking about the nation of Israel that's been so beat up and rejected and is the sacrifice for mankind and all these other things. They've got some twist, and the main proponents of that were in the Middle Ages, some of these real powerful rabbis, Maimonides and Nachmanides, Ramban, in the Middle Ages, that they had to have an answer for that because the Christian church was using it. So they said, that's not talking about Jesus. That's talking about the nation of Israel and all the persecution they've gone through. Sad that you can be looking right at it and not see what you're looking at. Moses was filling that kind of a role, though. He was standing there like an intercessor saying, Look, Lord, if you're going to wipe out the nation of Israel because of this idolatrous behavior, blot my name out of the book you've written. That's a pretty bold thing to say. And I said, I think we talked about the book of life last here a little while back. I really feel like that was a statement almost like Abraham's statement to the Lord when he kept on going through that list about Sodom. And he said, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's like challenging God. I know your character, Lord. And I think Moses knew, God, you're not going to wipe me out. I've faithfully been serving you. So let me stand here in front of the people. Lock me out, Lord, if you're going to take them out. I'll stand here. That's a pretty incredible thing to say, the way they treated Moses. They treated Moses pretty bad. And for Moses to get in front of them and say, if you're going to hit them, hit me. Pretty incredible statement. Notice what the Lord says in response. Moses is talking about a book that he knew he was in that he could get blotted out of. And then God makes it very clear what happens that would blot you out of the book. That if you sin against God, you'll be blotted out of the book. Now, that's very simple. We get in a lot of things that could be that kind of sin, but a lot of sins can be corrected. So you wouldn't be blotted out of the book. What it comes down to is if you break covenant, if you break relationship with God, and you end your life in that state, you will not be in the book when you go into the ground. You want to be in the book when you go into the ground. Because if you're in the book when you go in the ground, you are coming out of the ground. So make sure your name is in the book. So how do you get your name in the book and thus know you have a resurrection? Well, we don't know how Moses got his name in there other than the fact that we know he was in a covenant relationship with God. But Moses didn't do everything right. One of the things people tie to Holy Spirit baptism, and it should be because it is tied to it, is the rite of circumcision. You realize he didn't even circumcise his sons up until he was on his way back to Egypt. This is kind of like when Israel was getting ready to go into Canaan and they crossed the Jordan and went into Canaan and before God would let them keep moving forward and conquering the land, they had to go through and have that rite completed. I touched on that a few times already and I don't know if I'll get into it tonight, but for the sake of time, I may not. But I will get into it in more detail sometime because it is a very powerful picture of the fact that somebody could not be circumcised and still be among the people of God when God allows that for a time. And what's interesting is they went into the wilderness and stayed uncircumcised until after they had come all the way out of the wilderness. Which means if we're going to use that parallel, which if you look in the New Testament and study the idea of circumcision in the New Testament, you'll find out that there is no physical circumcision required under the New Covenant. But there is a spiritual circumcision. Spiritual circumcision has replaced physical circumcision as a necessary rite, so to speak, R-I-T-E, under the new covenant. Spiritual circumcision begins with Holy Spirit baptism. This might sound controversial. Somebody here tonight asked me a question about it. It was an excellent question. I'm not going to throw them under the bus by mentioning their name because this is controversial. But spiritual circumcision, listen to how I worded this, begins with Holy Spirit baptism. You realize full spiritual circumcision is a complete removal of the heart and a replacement with a new heart, right? We've all still got an old heart God is working on cutting out of there. It's not done yet. So Holy Spirit baptism doesn't completely do that work. It starts the work. 
That work has to be completed by going on to perfection because you still got the old carnal nature in you. And until that old heart is completely gone, you're still going through. That might sound strange, I know. But you're still going through a circumcising spiritually. God's still cutting away that old heart out of your flesh. And then he wants to give you a heart of flesh. Now, that doesn't mean a fleshly heart. There's two different words in the King James Version. Flesh is usually just referring to flesh that is like living organic material. Fleshly is referring to someone that is carnal. So you always have to make a distinction between those two. When it's talking about flesh and blood, it's not talking about someone that's carnal and has blood. It's talking about someone that has a body and blood. But if it says someone is fleshly, it's talking about someone that's carnal. Fleshly with the L-Y on the end. Just think about that. Just think about it. It's controversial, but just give it some thought. It doesn't change anything in terms of any of our beliefs, but it just simply would have to probably be, no, I'm going to say have to probably, it'd have to be the case. <laughs> because as long as you still got the old heart in there, it's not all the way gone, is it? Still needs work. And by the way, the old heart isn't just going to be changed. It's got to be gone. It's got to be fully replaced. We've got to have some heart replacement surgery. And that surgery is kind of like one of the surgeries I went through where they expected it to take an hour and a half, two hours, Brother Isaiah. I'm about to call you Dr. Isaiah. That'd be all right too, but I like Brother better. Doctor's respectful, but Brother is a higher level yet, my friend. Great as it is to be in that position. A couple hours, and it was two or three times as long because they ran into some issues. That's a surgery where whatever issues they ran into, I came out of it swinging. So I must not have appreciated somewhere in my subconscious that I had been under the knife for six hours. So I came out having had enough. But anybody that sins against God will be blotted out of God's book, which means you have to be in a relationship with God to be in his book. Now, we know how Moses entered into a relationship with God, but we don't know how he initially did. We don't really know that. I'd assume his mother introduced him to God. There's a lot of stories traditions and other things out there. We don't know that, but I think that was part of the blessing of the fact that his mother was set up very strategically to be the nursemaid for that little boy. So that way she had the opportunity, even though he was about to be in Pharaoh's household for 40 years, she'd have the opportunity for the first couple years of his life, potentially, because sometimes they weaned a child. It took more than just a year. First couple years of their life, she had the opportunity to put some of her beliefs in his heart. I don't know if she sat down and taught him. That could have been dangerous. You could have really upset Pharaoh's daughter. She thought you were trying to indoctrinate her son into that religion. However she did it, she might have just done it by example. Later, and maybe this is one of the things that would have been so significant. I was just talking about this here lately. Later, after the Exodus and other things, and God's telling Moses to tell the people, remember, remember, don't forget this. Every time you do it, every time you do this, remind the children why you're doing it. When the children say, Daddy, why are you doing this? Why do we set the table like this? Why are we doing all this in the rite of the Passover, in the feast of the Passover? Here's why. Because God did this, and God did this, and it tells the whole story for them so they know the story. That would have been awfully dangerous for Moses' biological mother to try to directly teach that child the religion of Israel if Pharaoh's daughter found out about it. I told the young people when we had our youth gathering here, our youth Bible study, this so impacted me when I watched at Sight and Sound. We're going to try to get a group of the, any of them that can go and go there to see Daniel here in a few months. But I went here last fall, Sight and Sound, and saw the story of Moses. I hadn't seen it before. And one of the things, I think I mentioned this, I'm sure, in church, but I mentioned it in the youth meeting. One of the things that impacted me in a powerful way, it's not even in the Bible, but oh, I could feel something in it. It's just a piece of historical fiction. But at one point in the story, they had this long bridge going across the stage. And you know how those type of stories are. They're like a musical. There's songs throughout them and things. And at one point, they had Moses' mother, who had just given up Moses for the sake of protecting him. 
And Moses' mother is standing on one end of the bridge and she's crying over the loss of her son, you know, that she gave up her son. And Pharaoh's daughter's on the other end of the bridge. They, they don't see each other, but it's just playing off of this. And she's just glorying in the fact that I've got this son, I've got this boy I'm going to raise to be this great prince of Egypt. And Pharaoh's daughter just keeps in a real aggressive way singing, he's mine, he's mine, he's mine. And counterpoint to that, it just about had me speaking in tongues right there in the theater. Counterpoint to that is Moses' mother at the other end. He's not her son. He's not under her control anymore. He's out of her hands, but she's given him to God. It's like Hannah giving Samuel. And she kept on going, he's yours, Lord. And she was crying and saying, he's yours. He's yours. And the counterpoint was so powerful about shook that place. Pharaoh's daughter saying, he's mine. And Moses' mother saying, he's yours. Not Pharaoh's daughters, but God's. Powerful. Somewhere along the line, Moses got it in his heart, the hope of a relationship with God that carries in it the hope of a resurrection. And the reason I know it carries hope of a resurrection in it is what I've been talking about. There's no point in being concerned about being in the book if the book just meant being alive. Moses was already alive. So why is it so valuable to have your name in God's book? It's valuable because it means you'll be alive again if you die. If your name's in the book, you have the hope of a resurrection. 